Philippians chapter 1, verse 22 today. I just want us to begin reading at verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor. This will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I choose I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better, nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to And he does. And that should bring us, for the Christian, that should bring a reassurance to our lives. To know that nothing happens by chance when we're in the hands of a gracious, loving God. When we're in Christ, when we've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ for our, as our Savior. He's forgiven us our sins and we're placed into the body of Christ. Nothing can touch us unless God allows it. And so some of us have had to deal with death face to face. Maybe others haven't. But I guarantee you one thing, sooner or later, you will. And, you know, getting old and, and uh, you know, the body gives out in certain ways and things. We don't like to think about that. Matter of fact, I mean, you know, ladies and guys, I guess, we do everything we can, mostly ladies, to, to prevent us from looking at the age that we do, don't we? I mean, there's all sorts of things that you can I know that my mother, when she passed away, and even my, my dad, they both passed away in our house. It's the way it was. And you were familiar with it. But now, it seems, as hard as death is to face, and we don't like to talk about it, um, we do everything to prevent it. Um, it's almost, when it happens, an embarrassment, almost. We try to hide it. And, uh, you know, we don't tell the children, and we kind of shelter everybody from this, and, you know, usually it, it happens in a sterile hospital room, um, away from uh, the home, and then quickly the body's taken to the, the funeral home and made to look as if it has life again. And I know that this is a hard thing for us to face, because we've all had to deal with death to you. Again, last week we looked at joy in spite of the fact of death. And uh, the week before that we looked at joy in spite of those who come against us, detractors. Um, also in spite of trouble. And uh, one thing that Paul has in his heart is a joy that supersedes all these events in his life. And as Paul wrote this letter, remember that he was wanting to show, uh, he, he was really waiting for the Lord to show him whether he would live or die. I mean, can you imagine sitting here this morning in this service knowing that tomorrow you're going to stand before a judge and they're going to decide whether you live or whether you die? Uh, 
Um, our country is a little funny about death. Um, it used to be that when people died, when people passed on, at some point or another. And here's Paul. His own life is on the line. And sometimes we don't know what that's like because we, we fail to understand, I think, the whole thing about death. And, and so we, we, don't, we want to put it off. You know, I don't know about you, but I don't wake up in the morning thinking about how I'm going to die. Or, you know, what will, when it will happen, how it's going to happen. I don't think about those things. None of us probably do. Because it's not a, a subject that we like to ponder. But it's a definite thing, isn't it? I mean, sparing the Lord return, you know what? Everyone in this room will die. There's no doubt about it. Your, your physical body can only go for so long. In the song we sang this morning, it, he knows the number of our day. You know, you can go get facelifts and go to the, you know, major surgery. You can do simple things like, you know, packing makeup on your face. Makes you look like somebody you're not. That's okay. I like what J. Vernon McGee said, man, if you need it, pack it on, you know. It's, I, I just think that it's, it's you know, we want to we wanna retain our youth. And... You know, so many times when we've been listening to the radio or even watching TV on occasion, there's a commercial that comes up for, you know, one of these hair companies. You know, we'll give you back your full head. You know, and my wife always says, you know, you should try that. I said, look, there is no way. I mean, have you ever, you know, and I don't want to offend anybody, because, but have you ever seen, you know, some of the, the men who have tried to, you know, they, it's like they got corn crops in their head, you know, they, oh, it's supposed to grow back into a full head of hair. I don't think so. It just doesn't seem to be happening to me. Um, to me, it's just a fact of life. So I just assume take the shears and shear it off, you know, rather than, you know, because my hair is kind of light on top and you get this hair on the side and after a while you begin to look like Bozo the Clown, you know, you have this stuff. And I just assume shave it off and start over, you know, maybe to come back next time. Um, matter of fact, every time I shave my head, my wife looks and goes, well, it looks like it's, it's going to grow back full this time. <laughs> That's hopeful thinking, dear. It's not going to happen. Yeah, it's not, it's just not going to happen. When I first came to this church seven or eight years ago, whatever, Ken Saragusa and Ron Besser, I kind of joked with them about their shiny heads. And they said, we'll give it a couple years. I said, what's that mean? Just wait. I thought, boy, what did I, sure enough, you know, <laughs> here we are. But, but death and aging is just something that we do not want to look at, and especially when it's something dealing with our, our faith, when our faith is on the line. If someone were to say, you know what, um, either you deny Christ or we're going to lop your head off. Now, we think that today that's kind of a foreign idea, that that doesn't happen, but I'm here to tell you it does. It happens even today in the day and age we live in. That's why we have a military action going on in a certain country right now over in the Middle East. Because their idea of religion and, and uh, justice and all that is just warped. And so rather than allow them to take over the entire region, we're over there uh, basically uh, giving them something to think about. But in Iran, 
I want you to kind of, this little story I ran across is in the commentary. And in Iran, it's, it's, it's really uh, illegal to be a Christian. It's illegal to really uh, have any kind of a, um, a faith as far as, as Christianity, as Islamic nation, basically. And it says there are many Iranian believers, on the other hand, have learned Paul's perspective on death. And they, like him, provide an example for us Westerners. There's this guy, Mehdi, I'll just call him Mehdi, for example, was imprisoned by the government of Iran. Now listen to the year, and, and this happens today. In 1984, on charges of apostasy, since he had converted from Islam to Christianity. The penalty for this crime, according to the Islamic law that ruled Iran, was death. Mehdi languished in prison for 10 years before his case came to trial. When it did, his written statement of defense was simple and straightforward. It was a reaffirmation of his commitment to Jesus Christ. And here's what he said in the last few lines of his defense that he had to give when his went before the court and they said, okay, either you tell us what you we want you to tell us or we're going to lop your head off. Um, here's what he wrote. Jesus Christ is our Savior and he is the Son of God. To know him means to know eternal life. I, a useless sinner, have believed in his beloved person and all his words and miracles according to the Gospels. And I have committed my life into his hands. Life for me is an opportunity to serve him. And death is a better opportunity to be with him. Therefore, I am not only satisfied to be in prison for the honor of his holy name, but am ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus my Lord. And on December 12, 1993, the court convened and he was sentenced to execution and under intense pressure from the State Department, the United States State Department, the Iranian government arranged his release in 1994, January 1994. Seven months later, as usual was the case, he was found dead under suspicious circumstances in a park in Tehran. That happens every day. We don't know what it means to suffer for our faith. And here is Paul in prison, rejoicing in the Lord, not knowing what his future holds. Now, it's one thing to not know if we're going to die tomorrow physically or whatever in a car wreck. That's one thing. But to know that somebody's got a date of execution set for you, or at least that's their intent, I can't imagine living under that, just that pressure, that anxiety. And here in verse 22, he's talked about how he has confidence in their prayers and in the promise of the Lord, in salvation. And 21 is, for to me to live Christ, to die gain. There's no verb there in the original language. So you can kind of see where he's coming from. And in verse 22, he says, but if I live on in the flesh... And as he wrote this, he didn't know if this was the case or not. What does that mean if I live on in the flesh? What is he talking about? Does that mean he's dealing with the struggle of sin? 
Well, occasionally, usually, that word flesh, that's exactly what it's talking about. If you look over in Romans 8, chapter 5, it, it contrasts those who live according to the flesh with those who live according to the Spirit. And you can see there that it parallels the two and kind of writes out for us what those two look, for, look like. It says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. And that whole section kind of compares those two. Is that what he's talking about here? Is that what he's talking about? The, 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 the sinful flesh that we deal with on an everyday basis? Well, this word can also refer to the physical world in which we live in. In other words, being here physically this morning, you're here in the what? Flesh. You know, you're not a figment of my imagination, I hope. You're really there. I can run out and touch you and, and say, hey, wake up, you know. Uh, but, you know, it, it's important that you're here in the flesh. And I want us to look at a couple of verses because just to kind of support that idea. Because a lot of people make an immediate assumption that whenever you talk about the flesh, you're talking about sin and the flesh. Well, that's not the case. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, and I've written them down there, so if you can't turn that fast, that's fine. You can look them up later. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, it says, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. And what he's talking about, he's not talking about speaking, walking around in sin, but he's talking about living in this physical world. Living here, being here in the flesh. And although we exist in the physical realm, Paul says, we don't fight spiritual battles with physical weapons. The last time you were tempted to sin, you know, you, you didn't get out your big butcher knife and say, okay, come on, I'm going to bring it on, devil. That wouldn't make any sense. Why? Because it's a spiritual battle. And it has to be fought with spiritual warfare, not physical warfare. We all know the verse it's in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Now, Paul didn't, wasn't saying there that the, the, the life I live now in the flesh, he wasn't saying I live in sin. He was saying physically, I'm here. I'm living it, fleshing it out every day. And I live it by faith in the Son of God. 1 Peter 4.2 says, Live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. So there's various verses there that are written down. Well, it, it can also mean, and I've, I've given you some verses there uh, for the other thing too, that it, that it refers to the sinful part of us. But what Paul is talking about here in verse 22 is, if I live on in the flesh, in other words, if I remain with you, if I'm here, all right, what's, what's the purpose here? And so that's, that's the meaning there. And, and what he says in verse 22, he says, This will mean fruit from my labor. This will mean fruit from my labor. It's good to have fruit from your labor, isn't it? Isn't that a blessing? There's nothing worse than, than, than working on something and then at the end of, of your labor you don't have anything. You know, there's nothing worse than, than going out in the back and, and planting a garden and toiling and, and taking care of these tomato plants and, and whatever else, you know, onions and, and lettuce and whatever else you plant out there. And at the end of the season, you don't have squat. 
All right, you just have some shriveled up. That's probably what would happen to me if I tried to do that kind of thing. I'm toying around with the idea of putting a little garden in the backyard. But it's like everything I touch dies, it seems. All right, you come over and look at my backyard. It's just all dirt. I, I rotated everything under. I figure that way, you know, we have, as soon as a weed crops up, I just go out and touch it and it dies, you know. Not really. It works just the opposite with weeds, but I've agreed with them when it comes to those. But, you know, there's nothing more frustrating in life than working hard, toiling at something, and not going anywhere with it. It's just, it just doesn't work. And, and what Paul is saying here is that, you know what, spiritual work is hard work. Being a believer in the day and age we live in is difficult. It's not easy. If it's easy for you, you must be doing something wrong. Because it's not easy. And what he's saying here is this, this will mean fruitful labor for me. There's a promise there of fruitful labor if he stays on. If he stays on in the physical world. And that makes sense. If you're working at a job and, and you're working hard at the task and, you know, you're seeing fruit, fruit from your labor and, you know, everybody's happy in the company and the boss doesn't like you so he fires you. Well, it's going to be very hard for you to have any fruitful labor, labor at that job any longer because you're no longer physically there. And what Paul is saying is, hey, if I'm going to stay here, this is going to mean fruitful labor. It's going to be fruit from my labor. It's, 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 it's kind of a uh, expected thing is what he's saying. And he considered being alive as a Christian, it's just a given that you're going to have some kind of fruit in your life. There's going to be something there. And I think that that's the whole idea when he back in verse 21 when he says, for to me to live is Christ. Everything Paul was uh, about, everything he talked about, everything that he was focused on, had to deal with Jesus Christ. And I think that, you know, the fruitful labor here that he's talking about is the work of the Lord. He's not talking about full-time ministry. He's not talking about, you know, those who are, quote, in ministry, whatever. We should all be in ministry. I hate that when people say that. You know, oh, are you in ministry? What do you mean by that? Usually what they mean, are you getting a check from the church to do what you do? That's what they mean. But they, they say, oh, are you in ministry? You know, are you in professional ministry? I didn't know there was such a thing, but, you know, at least that's not on the pages of Scripture. We should all be involved in ministry. We should all have a passion to live for Christ each and every day. If we don't have that, there's something wrong. If there's not some fruit in our life that says, man, you know what? I just can't wait to serve my Lord and Savior. I can't wait to do something for the Lord. I want to say something here. A lot of times people think that, you know, doing something for the Lord, well, that's, that, that means you have to do something for the local church. And I say, for the most part, a lot of times that's true. But not always. There are ministries that you can have outside this church. God can use you on your job. God can use you, you know, as you're riding a train to work. Those are all ministry areas that, 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 you know, we can't connect to here, but you can because that's where God leads you. And so don't ever think that, well, if I'm going to serve the Lord, I have to do it within the confines of these four walls. You know, I have to sign up for a, a ministry team or, or serve in the nursery or whatever, then I'm serving the Lord. You know, I mean, we encourage that. Don't get me wrong. You know, that should just be a given. But what do you do outside these four walls? 
And see, when the word of truth, the gospel, I think is faithfully proclaimed, it always bears fruit. It always bears some sort of fruit. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Look at, look at verses 5 and 6. He is warm? Yeah, I'm warm too. Okay. Colossians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. He says there, Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it also has in all the world, and is what? Bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you, since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying, you know what? As a believer, you should look at your life and see some little sprout. You should see something in your life. If you don't see any fruit, you know what? There's no life. It's dead. The Bible says that without Christ, we're dead in our trespasses and sin. And it's only through Christ that we can be transformed and forgiven of our sins and, and made a new new life infused into our very being. And that happens when we come to Christ. You can look at your life and say, well, you know what? I don't know if I see any fruit. There's probably not any there. Well, what kind of fruit are we talking about? You know, and this is an important point because, you know, Paul is, is not talking here of, of works that we try to produce so that somehow we'll earn God's favor. In, in some systems of beliefs, that's how you kind of work your way up the rung of, of faith. You get closer to God by doing more things. So in our Western mentality, the more I do, the closer I am to you, Lord. So if I'm at church 24-7 and my family falls apart, hey, but I'm, 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 I'm serving the Lord. I mean, you would not believe the amount of... of Households within people who are in full-time ministry, as far as professionally and and you know, like like I said before, getting a check from the church to do what they do, and that's what they do. That's all they do. A lot of times, they have things so far out of whack that their whole family's falling apart, their marriage is falling apart, but their ministry is thriving. And then everything caves in, and everybody sits back and goes, "Boy, what, what happened with that?" Well, it's important, I think, for us to realize that, that God wants us to do these good works, not because of He's going to love us more. Turn over to Ephesians, to the left there in your Bible, chapter 2. We don't do good works as believers so God will love us more. Sure, it's pleasing to Him, but, and we'll get a reward in heaven, but we do it out of, out of the love that's in our hearts. You know, hopefully when you were raising your kids... You know, you didn't make deals with your kids. You know what? I'll change your diaper, but you know, you can't you can't cry for the next hour. You know, I mean, you, you wouldn't do that with somebody you love. You know, you just serve them. Uh, Ephesians chapter two, verse ten. Look at what this says. Some of you may have never seen this before. Some of you may say, "Oh yeah, we know this verse by heart." It says, "For we are His workmanship." Whose workmanship? God's workmanship. Who's we? Those who are in Christ, Christians. Those who know Christ are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
When you got saved, God created you for that very purpose, to do good works. And the neat thing is, is He doesn't create you, you know, recreate you as a believer and say, okay, now you're a Christian, go do them. Go at it. Go find some good works to do. I mean, that, that would be good. I mean, we, I'm sure we could come up with some things. But look at what the end of this verse says. It says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Just like his salvation, just like a Christian salvation, the sanctification and the good works are by the grace of God. And he prepared for us beforehand good works that we should walk in them. And so it comes down really to obedience. If God prepared us good works to do before beforehand and we get saved and we're not doing any good works, then there's a problem there of disobedience. In Philippians 2, 13, look over at that verse. It says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do, for his good pleasure. See, that's an important verse because it's, you know, as Christians, we don't sit down and say, okay, the pastor said we have to do good work, so let's see, I'll help, you know, an elderly woman across the street, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll go get groceries for this person, I'll give a dollar to the, the beggar down there in front of Safeway, and check, 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 now I did my good works for the week. That's not what we're talking about. These are, these are good works that we do because we want to be pleasing to God. And it's because God is working in us. It's not something that, you know, I don't wake up in the morning and go, okay, you know, list ten things I have to do today and others so I can stay in favor with, with God. I know that I'm in Christ and there's, there's no condemnation, period, for those who are in Christ. And so as a result of that, that makes me want to serve Him even more. Well, what is this fruit that he's talking about? I think he's he's dealing with everything that encompasses spirit-directed and spirit-empowered motives, behavior, and it's all built on the foundation of Christ. But you can kind of break them down into three categories, and I put them there. Attitudinal fruit. You think of the, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, love, peace, joy, all those things. Well, those are, those are attitudes. Those are things that we have in our life. And by the way, it's not... Plural, the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. So as a believer, all those things should be that we should possess. See, a lot of times we look through that list and we go, oh, you know, I like this one. You know, it's kind of like getting a, one of those things for Christmas, you know, those baskets of fruit. You ever get one of those? Those things are pretty good sometimes. You know, you get those, they're wrapped in the cellophane thing, and you open it up, ah, what will I take first? Ah, you know, here's a peach, here's a plum, here's a pear, here's an orange, here's a grapefruit. Um, you know, and you have your selection. Well, that's not the idea in, in Galatians chapter 5. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And what he's saying is, you know what, you should, you should, you should be possessing all those. 
If the Spirit of God is working in your life, that should just be part of your life. Now, it doesn't happen 100% of the time, every day of the week, 24-7, because we're still here in the flesh, not the physical world, but our sinful flesh, and we deal with that every day. So there's a struggle going on. But there is attitudinal fruit, you might call it, which is the fruit of the Spirit. There's also fruit that, that is from actions. In, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 11, he says, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. I mean, we could go on all day about the, the fruits of righteousness. In other words, it's, it has the idea, what righteousness does fruit, or what fruit does righteousness produce in your life? Well, we know right away that we're not going to produce our own righteousness because the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. We've all sinned. We all fall short of God's glory. And so if we can't produce our own righteousness, what are we going to do? Because God says that we should bring forth the fruit of righteousness. That's why, once again, we have to go to the cross. We go to the one who is all righteous. Supreme righteousness is found in Jesus Christ. And he doesn't say, I'm going to keep it all for myself. He says, hey, I want to spread it around. I want to cover you with my righteousness. So when God looks at you, sinful Steve Converse down there on earth, he doesn't see sinful Steve Converse anymore because you're placed into my son, Jesus Christ. And my son is 100% righteous. So now when I look at sinful Steve Converse, I see the righteousness of my son, Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It doesn't mean that you're you're an, any better of a person. Have you ever been to uh, Disneyland or I don't know where else they have them, but you go to an amusement park and you see these characters dressed up, you know. And it's funny. I love to sit there and watch sometimes how kids interact. Some kids go up and shake their hands and you know are just real lovely. Some are real shy and get freaked out and scared and run away and everything. And you know, but they have they're putting on something that's not them. I mean. You know, as a matter of fact, one time I think we were at, at uh, I think it was Disneyland. Took some kids down there on a youth group thing, and it wasn't our group, thank heaven. But one of them actually assaulted one of these guys. I mean, went up and you know they tore the thing off his head, and you know there he was. I don't know who, which which one it was, but one of the characters, you know. And the police came and you know kicked the people out of the park and actually arrested him. But you know it was it was a weird thing. You know, you see this animated thing, all of a sudden you see a human head sticking out of Scooby Doo or whatever it was. I can't remember. You know, and it was just odd. And and see when we look at that character, you know, it puts on a they're clothed in in something that makes them look like something they're really not. It's just a human being, but it looks like Mickey Mouse or it looks like Donald Duck. Well, the difference is is as we're placed in Christ, we're still sinful. The, the difference is our, our sins are forgiven. And we, we have the righteousness of Christ placed over us. And as far as God is concerned, we're, we're clean. We're not, we're not even in the, you know, the, the process of becoming clean, you might say. We're, we're totally righteous in His eyes. And that's why the Bible can say, you know what, when we sin as a believer, what do we have to do? Do we have to go out and tear our, our, our cloth and put ashes on our head and mourn and, and do more good works so that maybe God will give us a second chance? No. It says, you know what? We go to God and we confess our sin. And he says that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But how can he do that? Because it's a done deal. Because we're already in Jesus Christ. 
He already paid the price. He's totally just in doing that. And so, action fruit consists of righteous deeds. Not that we do. Christ does them through us. Once again, Paul says it's the life, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who lives His life through me. Well, it can also, re what else can fruit mean? It can also relate to believers. Or I mean to uh, converts. People who come to Christ. In Romans chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 13. He says there in, in, in verse 13, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, but I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now. Now look at what he says. That I might have some fruit among you also. Just as among other Gentiles. Oh, I see. What Paul's saying is, you know, he doesn't want them to be unaware, and he planned to come to you, but he was hindered, and so when he comes, he wants us to give him an apple. That's not what he's talking about. Okay, he's talking about fruit. He's talking about seeing people come to Christ just as well as they stole among the Gentiles, because he goes on in verse 14, he says, I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and unwise. So as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation whoever, to every, for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the, the Greek. For it is the righteousness of God in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It is written, the just shall live by faith. And so, when we talk about fruit, spiritual fruit, we can talk about having a certain attitude, possessing the fruit of the Spirit. We can also talk about righteous deeds that are created in our life by God that we walk in, that He prepared beforehand even for us to do. And we can also even include converts. When we're used by God to bring someone else to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And, and let me tell you, God does want to use you. I mean, that's, you know, if you stop and you think about it, I think that's probably the main reason why he left you here. Is so that we can go around and spread the good news of the gospel and be instrumental in, in allowing other people to come to Christ through us. Sharing the gospel of Christ, telling your testimony. Whatever it is that God leads you to do. However it is God leads you to do it, that's what we need to be doing. In the church, we call that evangelism. Just to mention that word, everybody, you know. Sometimes that's not a fun thing to do. Other people, man, they can't wait. That's all they want to do. You know, it depends how God gifts you. But it's important to understand that every one of us was left here for a purpose. And it wasn't just to sit back in our armchair of grace and, you know, just live out life. It was to serve God. And one of the ways to serve God is to not be ashamed of the gospel, but to share it through your, through your walk so people can look at you and say, wow, there's something different about that individual. I wonder what it is. And also through your talk, to share the word of Christ, to share the gospel with those. See, the thing that helped me out with the whole evangelism deal, is it's not the power of my words. Have you ever had, heard someone say, oh, there's power in that person's words? No, there's not. You know, there's certain there's certain people, um, you know, that I can't remember the guy's name. He's a positive speaker kind of a guy. Tony Robbins, yeah, that guy, you know. Looks like a you know a wholesome American guy. He gets up there and he speaks, and you're just like, oh, 
you know, people say, oh, there's power, and there's, you know what, when you really boil it down, his words are kind of empty. Because basically, it's how you believe in yourself, all this stuff. And then people get on that wave, and they want to ride that wave, well, eventually the wave crashes. All right? And, and so it's important to understand that the message that we share with people is not our own words. It's the message of the gospel. And the message of the gospel, God says it, not me, will, will produce fruit. When you go out and you faithfully share the gospel with those around you, when you faithfully share your testimony, when you tell them what an impact Christ has made on your heart and in your, on your life, people want to know that stuff. We think that, you know, we live in a, an area that's so dark and dreary that nobody ever wants to talk about spiritual things. That's really not true. People are hungry. People are, are dying to hear it's truth. We live in such a compromised area. When you actually are bold and say something that's just matter of fact, it catches people off guard. I talked to somebody the other day at the coffee shop down there that we got on the topic of... Uh, evolution and he was talking about you know he wasn't really the topic of evolution he just made a comment you know yeah you know millions millions of years you know something about the you know when they those, those bones they found that they thought was a mammoth or whatever down in Santa Clara he's talking about that well that probably happened millions and millions and millions of years ago I said yeah well fat chance and he goes why I go fat chance he goes what do you mean I go I don't know I think scientists for the most part when you when you begin to look at it, and they begin to look at this whole evolution thing, and millions and billions and billions of years old, as some of them would have you to believe, um, are coming to conclude that the Earth was probably pretty young. What do you mean? Well, there's certain individuals that say the Earth isn't probably any older than 10,000 years. What? He's just blown away by this. They say, yeah, there's reputable scientists that believe when you start looking at tree rings, you look at falling stars, you look at all this stuff, but it really concludes for a young Earth theory. It doesn't conclude in having billions. Because what about the Grand Canyon? You know, you go see there, and it had to take that long for that water to trickle down and go through all those. I said, you know what? Do you know what a major flood would do? Have you ever been in a major flood? Oh, yeah. What happens after a major flood? Well, there's things eroded. Right. Does it take years? No. It takes seconds. Look at the tsunami. I mean, it wiped out the whole thing. I mean, and that's just one wave. Can you think if all of a sudden the entire Earth was a tumult of, of waves? I didn't think about that. But isn't that a story in the Bible? I said, sure, it's a story in the Bible, but I think it's one that's true. And you begin to share some facts that, you know, they find certain stuff in strata down here that's supposed to be billions and billions of years old that should be way up here. Then you have stuff up here that's way, and it's all mixed up. They don't tell you all that stuff. Now, you can go to the Smithsonian Institute and see the little, you know, half man, half monkey thing, you know, lying right up there, proud on display. They don't tell you. You know, when you look at those things, those skeletal remains, you ever notice the skeletons are different colors, different shades? Well, usually the one that has the, the most coloring in it, like one to be dark and one to be light, is made up. And the only actual bone may be this little bone down here in the toe, and they make a whole skeletal remains out of one little bone. Matter of fact, they made one out of a pig's tooth. They said, oh, this was a human being, half man, half monkey, and, you know, walked this way, and it's all a lie. And yet, boy, we just eat it up. Oh, wow. And it's about time we begin to step out and share some of these facts 
and begin to defend the faith that we believe in. And don't just, you know, become a bunch of, excuse the word, but, but dummies to what the world is dishing out. Because it's a lie. And this is the truth. You know, and if, see, the, the problem is either this is the truth or it's not. And if evolution's true, this is not. So let's go home. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I choose to believe that, you know what, it's a lot easier for me to believe that an almighty God could create in six days what we see around us versus you look at the intricacies and everything that the human body is made of and say this came from a piece of sludge that washed up on a peach somewhere. does not make any sense. And so we need to stop and we need to say, hey, what, what, is, what are we really about here? Are we being bold? Because as we're bold with the gospel message, people will latch on to it. They'll begin to hear it. They'll begin to understand it. And it's all obviously under God's spirit. He draws them. But back to Philippians, he says that it's labor. It's hard work. It's difficult. It's not easy. That word there, often in his, in his ministry. He used it to describe Epaphroditus' work in Philippians 2.30. He says, he came close to death for the work of Christ. In other words, he was working so hard for Christ that he almost died. Romans 1.13 says, I planned to come to you that I might have some fruit among you. We already read that. 1 Corinthians uh, uh, 16.15 talks about the house of Stephanus. And they were the first fruits of Acacia. Once again, these can be converts, is what he's talking about. But to do that, it takes hard work. So spiritual fruit can include people, deeds, words, whatever's of eternal value. But that fruit comes from hard work. It doesn't come from, you know, just wishing one day maybe you'd have the, the, the guts to go out and share your faith with somebody. It's not going to happen that way. You gotta say, you know what, this is the day. I'm gonna go down to the park here and wander around till I find somebody. And I'm gonna attempt God by faith in you to share my testimony with them. I don't know how it's gonna even play out. I don't even know what I'm gonna say, but God, I'm trusting you to do it. Or you know what, this is the week I'm gonna share Christ with somebody at work. Or in school. See, the problem is our society has made us believe that that's a personal thing. You, know, you don't want to go out there and offend people because if you do that, then people won't like you and we all want to be liked. So it's easier to go through high school or college and never tell anybody you're a Christian or live for the Lord because, you know, that's the easiest thing to do. What we need to do is stand up for those believers who are in other countries who are giving their life for the cause of Christ. And say, you know what, it's about time that maybe... Maybe we went under some persecution here for our faith. So it's hard work, but it's also, it takes a strong desire to do it, and that's what Paul had, obviously. He had a desire to serve the Lord in a way that puts all of us to shame. And so he says there that, you know what, if I'm going to live on here, it's going to be fruitful labor, fruit from my labor. And then he Basically, he says there he has to make a choice. Look at verse 22, the end of verse 22, 23. He says, yet yeah, what I choose, I cannot tell. Well, what's his choices? His choices, first of all, he says he's hard-pressed in both directions. Death or life. That's his choice. 
and he really understands that it's really not his choice anyway. <laughs> it's God's choice. But he's kind of so close to the Lord here, he's saying, God, I don't know which one to pray for. Have you ever been there to a point where you, you have two choices that are of equally good value, everything, and you don't know which one to do? That's where Paul's at here. He says he's hard-pressed. Does he want to go meet the Savior or does he want to continue to serve the Savior? And he says, you know what? I don't know. That word occurs 26 times in the New Testament. And 18 of those occurrences are in Paul's writings. And what it means is to reveal or make known. Paul couldn't say which one he would choose. And he knew it was really, you know what, this is in the Lord's hand. It's not mine. And given the choice, he couldn't, he couldn't of, of death or life, be able to make that choice. <laughs> but if you had to make a choice right now between death and life, which one would you choose? I mean, right now is the time. You die this morning right now, or you continue to live. That's the kind of choice that Paul was having to deal with here. That's the kind of choice that he was uh, attempting to to really make. And yet he realized that it wasn't his choice to make. I think a lot of us would say, today? You mean like right now? Yeah, right now. Steve Gomber's dead on the platform. By his own choice. Wouldn't that be a hard choice to make? I mean, think about it. As a believer, where are you going to be? You're going to be in the presence of God. And we stop and we think, well, that'd be awesome. That'd be neat. But, you know, I like my grandson. I like to watch him play with his trains. I'd like to see him one more time. I kind of got some other things I'd like to do first. Some of you may say, you know, we didn't go on summer vacation yet. Maybe after vacation. I mean, all these things pop in. And you know what? That wasn't even on Paul's radar map. That's how he lived. And his attitude was, you know what? I'll be thrilled to go with Christ in glory or to stay here. I can't choose God, it's up to you. Totally up to you. And that word hard-pressed means really to hold together. It speaks of being hand up, hemmed in on all sides. Kind of pictures a traveler walking down a narrow path. And there's a steep cliff on, on one side and just a wall of granite on the other. And you can't turn left or right. The only way you can go is straight ahead. And Paul felt pressure from both sides, as all of us do probably sometimes. He didn't know which way God would lead, but he says that he had a desire to depart and be with Christ, and yet also to remain on in the flesh. There were two equally strong, equally good choices in his mind. When he said he had that desire there to depart, that word is often used... Speaking of sinful lust, but here it's used in, the, in, in, in a good way. 
but it's that same burning, passionate desire. And it's something that's unfilled. And in this case, it's talking about for something good, not something bad. And he had a desire to depart. And that comes out in his word too, 2 Corinthians uh, or Second Timothy 4, 6, he says, I'm ready to be poured out as a drink offering. In other words, hey, if God takes me today, that's fine. The time of my departure is, is at hand. Second Corinthians 5, 8, he says, We are of good courage. I say to prefer, to prefer to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Closing, I just want to share one thing here. You know, hopefully we believe that. To be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. Uh, when a believer leaves this world, they go immediately into the presence of Christ. There's no soul sleep. There's no, you know, purgatory kind of place where you go and you hang out. And, and then depending on how much people pay the priest in certain churches, then maybe they can pray you out quicker to get up to the upper level where you really should be. That's a lie from the pit of hell. And it's a lie that was created, basically, to get money out of your wallet into theirs. The Bible doesn't ever, ever teach purgatory or some kind of waiting place or anything like that. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's why he says there in verse 23, I'm hard-pressed between the two. He doesn't say three. He doesn't say, well, should I stay here? Should I go with Christ or should I hang out in between? He doesn't say that. And I think that we need to under, understand that. Even to the thief on the cross, Christ said, Truly I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Over and over and over again, when Stephen was, was stoned um, to death in the, in the New Testament, I always feel like I have to qualify that. I speak to some kids one day and I said that, you know. Now, Stephen was stoned. Really? Yeah. And then, I, and then I realized what they were saying. I was like, oh, no, not that kind of stone. I mean, he was, they pelted him with rocks. They were thinking, well, there's drugs in there. I didn't know there's that in the Bible. But he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And having this, he fell asleep. And his, his, his spirit was immediately thrust into the presence of Christ. Uh, we need to remember that. Um, next week we want to look at why did Paul feel it necessary to stay? Because in verses 24 to 26, he concludes, you know what, i got to stay here. And, and there's a reason why. And we'll find that out next week. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, we pray that your word would penetrate our hearts. Father, we ask that, uh, above all, that you would be glorified in our presence. Lord, if there's anyone here who's yet to trust you as their Lord and Savior, Lord, maybe they're trusting in their own goodness. Maybe they're trusting in their own uh, affiliation with a church or whatever. Lord, the only thing we can trust in that's solid and that's sure um, is your grace, the, the death in life of your Son, Jesus Christ, who came in the form of man and he lived a perfect life and he died willingly for the sins of the world. 
And Father, when we come to the point in our life where we're convicted of our sin, when we understand that there's no righteousness in us whatsoever, that we all have fallen short, and we all deserve hell, but because of your grace, you reached out to us, and you extend your grace even this morning. And Lord, I pray for those who have yet to trust in you. I pray that you would convict their heart and cause them to repent. Lord, that you give them that desire to be clothed in righteousness of Christ. Lord, that you would transform your heart and corrupt into a heart of flesh. And cause them to have new desires for you. You know what it means to have your sins forgiven. as believers, we pray that we would do the works of righteousness that you prepared before us. And Lord, that we do it without whining, whining, mumbling, and grumbling. Lord, that we would do it with the joy that was in all of our willing, bold, passionate. Father, that you would use us to reach out to the lost and dying world of society in which we live. So we yearn to hear some truth. task, and that you would use us for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.